it's great to be back with you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Matt Howell, and I am one of the pastors here. And I do want to welcome you to Redeemer, regardless of where you find yourself this morning. Redeemer is a church. And what that means is we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God and to love our neighbor as we rest in his love, as we remind one another of his love, and as we reflect his love to our friends and our neighbors here in Midtown. And in order to help us do that this uh, season of Lent, we have been continuing our look at this great book from the New Testament called First Peter. We're trying to answer this question, what does it look like to be the church in a post-Christian culture? And it's so helpful because this book gives you a, 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 there's this dominant metaphor that's shot all throughout the whole book that refers to the church, us, uh, the people of, of Jesus as exiles. That's the, that's the language, that's the metaphor that gets, gets, gets used. We, we're immigrants, we're, we're refugees here, which means this is not our true home. America is not our true home. Memphis is not our true home. And as a result, that just means that we don't fit in sometimes. We're just strange and different in a lot of ways. And what I want you to say this morning is that even our families are strange and different. The dynamics of how even our families are set up are strange. Now, I don't um, know, but I can imagine for some of you what it was like to hear that passage that was just read. I can only imagine what some of you feel because Peter is addressing wives and instructs them not to be concerned with outer beauty. He seems to insinuate that women should call their husbands Lord. He refers to them as weaker vessels. So I can imagine some of you are probably feeling lots of different things. Maybe you're feeling confused where you're thinking, okay, this is so obviously primitive and outdated and irrelevant for our modern world. I'm a little, I'm a little confused why we're even wasting time talking about this. Uh, maybe you feel uh, scared. You're like, okay, is this man really about to stand up in front of a room full of people and tell women to be doormats? Uh, th- th- don't passages like this just open up the door for mistreatment and abuse? Uh, maybe you're feeling anger. Some of you are feeling anger where you're just, you read this passage and you're like, this is just blatant misogyny. This is, this is why Christianity is just part of the problem. It's just perpetuating the patriarchy and toxic masculinity and, and the oppression of women. And maybe you're feeling pain. You hear this passage and, and you, you, know, you have a kind of a PTSD response where, where it reopens wounds of your own mistreatment, your own abuse in some ways. And so I know that's a lot and it's not lost on me either that I'm a man and depending on what your experience has been with men, fathers, uh, uh, pastors, or um, other, other men, this may be a particularly hard moment for you to have to hear me be the one that teaches this passage. And so uh, I I just want you to know on the front end that I'm going to try to teach this with all sensitivity and honor. Um, But also I freely admit, I don't know what it's like to be a woman or what it's like to hear this passage taught from um, a man. And so I'm asking for your kindness and your your generosity and and, uh, bearing with me on the front end as we get into this. Um, Despite all of its kind of obvious challenges in this passage, I do believe that this passage is good news. I do believe that it was given to us in love and for our good, and these words invite us into the way of Jesus, which is never oppressive and always designed for our good. 
So let's look at it together. I, I want to look at this really under four headings. Four. Four. So cancel your lunch plans. We're going to look at the way of Jesus, what that means for wives, what that means for husbands, and then how we can do it. The way of Jesus, what it means for wives, what it means for husbands, and then how we can do it. So let's just look at these one at a time. First, the way of Jesus. I think one of the most important words in this passage is the word likewise. You see it in verse one, likewise wives. And then in verse seven, likewise husbands. What is the word likewise referring back to? It's referring to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, which is what I put in, in your reflections in the beginning of your bullets. And here's what it says. He says, to, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's the key. Jesus is being held up as the reference point, as our example. What did Jesus do as our example? As our servant king, he voluntarily submitted himself. He voluntarily, willingly gave of himself. He's the example. In fact, there's, a, there's another passage in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that's actually really helpful shedding some light on this passage. And you kind of got to put in your kind of theology brain for just a second because he's talking about the Trinity. And he says, Jesus as the son of God is fully and equally God and yet chose to submit himself to the agenda of his father. He was, he was no less in value or dignity or glory than the father and yet he willingly submitted himself to the, to the father's agenda for his life. You remember in the garden right before he's crucified, he prays, father, not my will, but your will be done. What he's praying is God, I, I, I'm submitting my desires for your desires. I'm not getting what I want right now. I'm, I'm, I am deferring to you. Did he do that because he was inferior in any way? No. Did he do that because he was being forced to in any way? No, he did it as a gift. He voluntarily submitted to the agenda of his father and he did it and it was not a sign of his weakness, but it was a sign of his greatness. So since he is our example, we likewise walk in his steps. We follow the way of Jesus. That's the idea here. Now, um, my children uh, have really been into this um, book called Dog Man, which is this kind of cartoon, uh, comic book kind of thing, graphic novel sort of thing. It's about a cop that merges with a dog, becomes Dog Man, superhero. They're into it, it's fun. At the end of the book though, it's pretty fascinating, they give you the opportunity to draw, they teach you how to draw the different characters. And so on one page you'll have this reference point, it'll be fully formed dog man. And then on the other side of the page, they kind of walk you through step by step how to draw. So draw a line here, and step two, draw a line here, step three, draw a little circle here. And then slowly by the end, you have this picture that you just drew of dog man. Now, I bring that up because in, the, in a similar sort of way, what Peter is doing in chapter two of this letter is he's holding up Jesus as this reference point and he starts thinking through all of these different relationships and showing you how to draw Jesus into these different relationships, as it were. 
So a couple of weeks ago, Ben took this passage where Peter starts to flesh out, okay, here's what it looks like to draw Jesus into your relationship with civic authorities. And then here's how to draw Jesus into this relationship with with people uh, who have power over you. And in the passage here, he's gonna show you how to draw Jesus into your particular marriage dynamics and family dynamics. But here's the point that I really want you to see is before we even get into the nuts and bolts of this passage, it does not matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you are married or single or widowed or separated or divorced or something else. If you are a follower of Jesus, this passage is saying to follow in his steps means that we submit to one another. Submission is a universal Christian posture across the board. Doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place to stand up and resist power structures that are oppressive. He's just saying that in general, the Christian's posture is one of deference. One in which we willingly, when it's appropriate, when it's wise, when it's right, we yield to others when we're able. We put other people's desires and needs and interests even above our own. That's what it means to submit, to get under, to defer. That's the way of Jesus, to walk in his steps, to submit to one another. So if that's the way of Jesus, what does that look like as it gets spelled out particularly for wives? Let's look at that second, number two. Well, let's begin. Peter looks at wives and in verse one, says for them to be subject to your own husbands. And then down in verse five, he gets at the same idea when he says submitting to their own husbands. What does that mean? Because that's a... That's scary language. What does that look like practically? Well, here's what's interesting. Um, The Bible gives almost no details about what that looks like in practice. Isn't that interesting? The Bible does not give rigid gender roles and says, well, the women can do this, the wives can do this, but they can't do this. All of that is intentionally left vague. In fact, the closest you get is in verse uh, two when he talks about uh, your, your conduct as being respectful and pure. He's just continuing that same idea of of sacrificial, self-giving, deferential way of life only now directed towards your husband. So what I want you to see is that submission is not necessarily a four-letter word. It it is not commanded passivity. It is a a gift that you choose to offer. It's a beautiful gift. In fact, Peter starts to talk about beauty here because he's thinking – a life of submission is beautiful because it's synced up to the way of Jesus. It's synced up to our servant king. And so this is why he starts to get into this whole discussion in verse three about beauty. In fact, let's read it. Verse three, he says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. In other words, Peter is saying, don't confuse beauty with bling, He's not saying it's, it's, you know, he's not condemning beauty per se. He's not, he's not condemning beauty or, or the desire to want to be beautiful or wear nice things. He's just simply saying the world gives us some pretty jacked up definitions of what is beauty. And don't make the mistake of confusing true beauty with externals only. That's what he's saying. I, I, you know, I don't really feel the pressures that I know a lot of people feel about, the, the, the pressures that the culture creates on, on, on um, the need to be attractive. 
Um, but I know that it's out there and I see it happening. I see the pressure that our culture puts on people and particularly women. I see the ways that women feel compelled to pose in a certain way or look in a certain way for Instagram or for the TikToks. I see the pressure and the energy that our culture devotes to dieting and exercise and the need to fit and be a certain size, be a certain size and look a certain way. There's so much pressure on external beauty. You remember in the um, Harry Potter books, the Vila? The Vila were these uh, young and beautiful and magically seductive kind of creatures where they would just put uh, people under a trance and draw men towards themselves. And yet when the Vila get angry, their heads turn into like bird faces and scaly wings sprout from their shoulders and they throw fireballs out of their hands at people. The point being, there's a lot more to a person than just the outsides. There's a lot more to a person than just the outsides. You can have a beautiful exterior and your character itself can be actually quite ugly. And so what Peter is doing, he is is saying, he's not doing away with external beauty, he's just condemning it as the measure of what is truly beautiful. He's not condemning external beauty, he's, he's condemning it as the measure of true beauty. What really is beautiful, according to Peter, is a holistic understanding of also your, of including your character. This is why he goes on, look at verse four. He says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now to be clear, when he is calling wives to have a gentle and quiet spirit, he is not calling wives to being timid and passive and silent and mousy. Uh, After all, gentleness is how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Gentleness is not a feminine quality. Gentleness is a Jesus quality. And therefore, gentleness is a Christian quality. In Galatians chapter five, Paul lists gentleness as one of the fruit of the spirit. In fact, even in another letter in Thessalonians, he commands all Christians to live quiet lives. Gentleness and quietness is is a universal posture for all Christians to be called into because it is the very heart of Jesus. A heart that that is tender and receptive and not combative and always looking for a fight. That's what he's getting at here. And then he offers this uh, potentially challenging example from the Old Testament in verse five. He says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I know that's a lot, but here's, here, here's my thoughts. Um, don't make too much of the Lord thing. This is referring to a story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis with Abraham and Sarah, and there's only one place in the whole narrative where she refers to him as Lord, and she doesn't even do it out loud. She does it in her head, just one time. This, this, this is not the way that she spoke to her husband. This isn't normalizing language of calling her husband Lord. This is a one-time thing, at least in this particular story. And it's an honoring, it was an honoring statement. It was a way to honor him. This would be similar to 
if after church this morning, my wife, Catherine, comes up to you and says, well, the reverend preached quite a sermon this morning, didn't he? Which is, I'm assuming what you do most Sundays. The reverend preached a good sermon. That's kind of what's going on here. She is, she's honoring him with this statement. And the whole context is God had called Abraham to uproot his family, uproot his life and follow him to a place that he didn't know yet. And Sarah was willing to go along with it. Unbelievably courageous of her. To follow anybody is scary because you're not in control. You're not in charge. You're, you're, you're kind of at the mercy of wherever this train is going. And, and, and Peter is lifting this, up, this example up as someone who is courageously deferential. She's submitting her agenda to Abraham who is submitting his agenda to God. That's the point here. Now, before I move on, I feel like I do need to say there are extremes. Of course there are extremes. And Peter is not saying that women submit, should submit to abuse. Women are not called and should never submit to physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual coercion, neglect, mistreatment, on and on and on. If you are experiencing that in any way, you should call the police. It is never loving or Christian to continue to allow abuse to happen. It is never loving or Christian to allow abuse to continue to happen. Outside of those extremes, Peter is saying, out of love for your servant king and out of a willingness to walk in his footsteps, that means you can defer as a gift. You can willingly give up some control when it's appropriate. You can yield to your husband's attempt to lead. And your yielding, your deference is beautiful because it is in sync with the very ways of Jesus. That's what this means for wives. Third, what does this mean for husbands? So much that we could say here. I want to try to boil it all down into one statement. Here's what this means for husbands. It means to live and, and, and seek out revolutionary counterbalance revolutionary counterbalance. Here's what I mean by that. Look at verse seven. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now to honor someone means to treat them with utmost respect, utmost significance. To honor someone is to elevate them in such a way where, where they, have, they have prominence and, 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 and uh, prestige, to elevate them. Why, think about this, why would Peter feel the need to do that, to call husbands to honor and lift up their wives? Here's why. Men, I don't know if you know this, but women are not treated great in our culture. Women are dishonored in our culture and they were equally as dishonored, if not worse so, in Peter's culture. The world... Will, 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 will want to treat her as less, pay her less, think of her as less, and, and uh, tell her that she has less ability just because of her gender. The world will make jokes that you do something like a girl as a way to insult her and as a way to insult women. 
at the same time while telling women, you must be beautiful and that beauty cannot, you, you, we, we will not allow any uh, wrinkles or stretch marks or extra weight. The world will generally want to exploit and take advantage of women because in general, typically, men tend to be physically stronger than women. That's what Peter is getting at with this weaker vessel thing. He's not referring to women's mental aptitude. He's not referring to women's character. He's not referring to their emotional life. He's just saying, in general, on average, men tend to be physically stronger than women. And here's his point. He's looking at men and he's looking at husbands and he's saying, husbands, use your cultural and physical and social advantages to counterbalance what the world has really jacked up. Fight for the public honor of your wife. Treat her like a queen. Honor her. Uh, she, She does not need your permission to speak. She needs you to stop hogging the microphone. Fight for her. Stand up for her. Celebrate her. Affirm her. Defend her. Dignify her publicly. That's what he is getting at. You may never lay your hands on your wives in anger. You may never do so. She should never feel threatened by you. She should sense that her husband has her back, that he is willing to defend her and treat her as her equal, even though the rest of the world may tell her that she's inferior. In fact, that's where Peter goes in this next verse. If you look at the, at the, at the end here, he says, since they are heirs with you, literally co-heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. This statement would have been a nuclear bomb in the Roman context in which Peter is writing this letter. In Peter's original context, think about this from a Roman Greek point of view. You know, Plato, the old you know, uh, philosopher, thought that women were literally less human than men were, less fully creatures than men were. That is the thinking in which Peter is writing into his context. And Peter is saying, you have to treat and relate to your wives as if they are equals, co-heirs with you in the grace of life, co-heirs with you in the kingdom. Revolutionary. Let me give you an example of what this might look like practically. I don't know. This is, this is just what came to mind. Uh, a number of years ago, my wife and I used to get, we were really into the show Friday Night Lights. Great show about high school football in West Texas. And it kind of centers around the life of uh, Coach Taylor, who at this point in the, in the show, uh, skipping forward, spoiler alerts, he wins the, the Texas State Championship for football. And because he has this big victory, uh, he gets all these job opportunities. And he, any job that he wants really in the state, but the job that he really wants is that the, the, the two local football programs are merging together, and he's the man that's being tapped to do this job. He's gotten to this point in his career where he's finally kind of getting his dream job that he's always wanted. And his wife, Tammy Taylor, gets a job opportunity in Philadelphia, which is her kind of dream job, to be the dean of college uh, admissions over in Philadelphia. (coughs) So now we have a family problem. Two dream jobs on the table, two different cities. Who's going to win? Who's going to defer to the other? And Coach Taylor decides, you know, my wife has set aside her career for all these years for for me to pursue my my football dreams, and it's time for me to set aside mine for her sake. And so he sets aside his dreams, and they end up, they move to Philadelphia so that she can pursue her dream job. 
He didn't throw a man card on the table and say, well, my career is more important. He defers to her. And it's beautiful and you watch this and it's moving and it feels right. And the reason why it feels right is because he's in some way resembling the way of Jesus. To defer for the sake of someone else. Now, I'll, I'll make one last point about this passage before we, before we wrap it up here. I think, it's, I think this whole section ends on a very fascinating note. Look at the very end of verse seven. He says, husbands, I want you to do all this so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a warning there. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you refuse to have a posture of deference to your wife, if you refuse to have a disposition of understanding and honor and equality, Jesus will not listen to you. That's what verse seven is is literally saying. He's saying, if you insist on not listening to her and shaming her and controlling her and hurting her and treating her as less, no matter how hard you pray, your prayers are just gonna hit the ceiling. They're gonna be hindered. Jesus is not listening. I think what's so ironic about this passage is that you know in our modern context, we read this passage and it sounds so initially offensive and jarring and, and backwards. And yet I think it's passages like this that, that made women flock to Christianity. Because in, in a culture that was horrifically oppressive, Christianity was telling women, you have value. Christianity was telling women, the God of the universe, Jesus himself, defends you and will not tolerate your abuse. It will not tolerate your mistreatment. And so in a world that was so horrifically oppressive, this was attractive. And so while we have different roles maybe to play out in how we, how we live our lives and how we reenact the gospel, the Bible is emphatically clear is that we are equal in value, equal in dignity, and both of us, men and women, husbands and wives, are called to deny ourselves for the sake of the other. That's the vision. So lastly, how do we do this? Because even if you cut through all of the challenging particulars of this passage, the bottom line is that we are still called to live deferential, submissive lives to each other. And nobody in here does that naturally. Men, women, doesn't matter what your gender is, it doesn't matter what your marital status is, to defer and yield for somebody else is not natural. So how do we do this? Lastly, briefly, here's how. Um, I recently watched a documentary about John Lewis, Good Trouble. So you might know John Lewis was um, in the House of Representatives. He was really involved in the civil rights movement of the 60s, good friends with Dr. King, uh, born and raised right outside of Troy, Alabama. Dr. King referred to him as the boy from Troy. And, uh, you know, um, John Lewis was at the front of the line on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma when they, were, when they were marching across, and he was gassed and beaten for it. He was involved in helping organize the, the sit-ins at the diners in Nashville. He was beaten for it, had his, had his head cracked open. And uh, he was, he was uh, they said in the documentary, he, he's been arrested something like 45 times. Just amazing, crazy. And so this documentary is following him around for the last few years of his life. And he's going from speaking engagement to speaking engagement. He's going from meeting to meeting and this camera crew is following him around. And what struck me is that as he's walking around, people were always coming up to him in tears, thanking him for the sacrifices that he has made for them. 
they're looking at him and they say, we are su- you are such an inspiration to us. You have fought for us and we are still fighting the fight that you began. And so they're looking at him with tears because they recognize here is this person that was willing to go into the brutality first. He's at the front of the line and he's willing to endure the abuse and the brutality and to get arrested for their sake. They connected the dots. He's doing this for us so we can have voting rights, so that we can have freedom, so that we can have dignity. Brought them to tears. What would happen if you began to see Jesus in the same way? I think in the same way it would bring you to tears. To know, okay, here's this man that willingly stepped forward into the abuse, into the brutality. He was willing to be arrested for me, to stand up for me, to defend me, to give me a new life of freedom, a a life in which my whole life is totally different than the way that it was before. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He was willing to go forward into the cross and even defer to his father's agenda for his life, even if it meant the end of his. But what did it all take for us to have freedom and a new life? Do you know what it took? It took Jesus's willing, voluntary submission. He submitted himself. He, even though he has all power and glory, he set aside his glory and he came down and he took the posture of a servant and he washed his disciples' feet and he lived a life of poverty and humility And he went all the way low and he deferred to his father's will for his life, even when that deference sent him to a suffering death on the cross. Why did he do it? Out of love for you. He was willing to endure the brutality for you so that you would have a new life of freedom. Do you know who are the most spiritually and psychologically enslaved people? It's the people that say, I have to be right. I have to be in control. I have to win. What a slavery. Jesus frees us. And he says, you have me now completely by grace. And you know what that means? That means I'm free to lose. I'm free to fail. I'm free to give. I'm free to yield. I'm free. I can do it voluntarily out of love for you. That's what Jesus does in us. By his very grace, he frees us from the spiritual and psychological slavery of we having to have our way and we can finally be released. I can give myself as a gift for you, for my neighbor, for my family, for my wife, for my husband, for my children, for whoever. So, As we wrestle with all of the particulars of this passage, I want us to always come back to Jesus, who is our servant king, and he lives this way for us. But he included us as co-heirs with him in the grace of life, and it's that very grace that sets us free, not to take power, but to give it away. And that's the way of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you do free us and you call us and you invite us to walk in the ways of Jesus, even if it is the way of the cross, the way of suffering. I pray that you would help us to connect the dots and to see that as a gift and not as something that we are coerced into, but something that we can give to our neighbors and to our families. Help us by your grace to work through the challenging particulars of this passage and free us into the ways of Jesus together, we pray in his name, amen.